0: Welcome to the container panel. I'm Clemens Töpfer from Töpfer Transport. We are s and brokers in Hamburg. We are active specifically on container ships, multi-purpose, heavy lift, and short sea. And if you think I look like the guy from Borealis in London, um, <laughs> he's my twin brother, and he's not here, so I'm the only twin here. Uh, so you be safe, you don't mix us up. On container shipping, the new contacts index had a point of 3,578 points in March, and we've dropped now 65% from them just on the index. Much more significant is the drop in the secure cash flow. In March of this year, you could fix and relatively old and not sexy 1,700 to you. You could fix for three years, at $40,000 a day, generating $43.8 million in cash flow. Now you can fix a similar non-eco 1700 to you. If you're lucky, you fix it for six months at $21,000 a day. Owners are willing to fix even shorter. But if you just say six months, $21,000 a day, you have a cash flow of $3.78 million, which is an 85% reduction in six months. So the market is certainly, I don't want to call it crashing, but it's certainly uh, changing directions uh, dramatically the last few months, and particularly since July. The companies in general have a strong balance sheet, so differently to the other crisis we had before, where particularly the Germans can can talk about it. You know, now we have strong balance sheets. And in most cases, the fleets are secured on long-term charters. And uh, so the books are, are, are based and, and safe for years to come. So the cash flow, secured cash flow, is huge. You know, while sitting high and dry with this uh, cash, secured cash flow, the market is correcting, and um, there's some certain instability there and maybe some surprises. Let me introduce you to the panel. When I start with, uh, from, from my far right with uh, Konstantin Buck, CEO of, of MPC Container Ships. MPC owns 74 container ships of 1,000 to 4,200 TU, and MPC Container Ships only started in 2017 and was listed on the Austro Stock Exchange in 2018. Then we have Ian Weber, CEO of Global Shiplease. Global Ship Leans owns 65 container ships, ranging from 1,000 to 11,000 TU. 30 ships of those of that fleet is white beam, so quite a lot of post Panamaxes. And GSL is listed on the New York Stock Exchange since August 2008, so quite, quite some timing there on August 2008 listing. Then we have Anastasios Aslidis, CFO and treasurer of EuroSeas and EuroDry. Euro-Seas own 18 container ships in the size of 1,000 to 6,500 TU. Euro Seas is listed on the Nasdaq since 2005. Euro Dry is the bike side of the business which was spun off in 2018 and has 11 bike carriers in the supermax and Camtamax space. And then we have uh, Dimitris uh, Dalakouras, CEO of KonMalk. KonMalk is a privately owned container or ship management company, who's managing ships for various investors from across the globe. Conbike does take equity positions in their ships they manage. Currently Conbike manages 40 ships of a thousand to four thousand two hundred TU. So basically everybody is mainly in the feeder segment to GSL going up to the 11,000 to use, but majority of the of the fleet is in the feeder segment. And if I may start, asking Dimitri uh, first question. Uh, Dimitri is, is not listed, so maybe he can be more honest.
1: <laughs>
0: um, and Dimitri, I was, I was thinking recently, um, we were in Singapore uh, on, a, on a cocktail party watching down on the F1 course. And someone said to me, F1 is, is, is actually quite, quite fascinating. They go on high speeds around the course, but after a while it gets boring. And all you hope is that maybe someone is crashing. So container has gone on quite high speeds. And um, are we crashing now? Are we, what, what do we expect? How do you see it?
2: Well, first of all, it's going on high speed for a very short period. So we didn't have much time to get bored. But anyway, uh, the market has decreased substantially. There is considerably. Uh, Pessimism out there. Uh, the fuel demand because of COVID and uh, congestion is definitely easing out. Uh, Ukraine has created a huge uncertainty environment in in Europe and an energy crisis. China's zero COVID policy seems to be there and will remain for for at least six to nine months. All this is negative and definitely doesn't help the container market. Uh, on the other hand, we have a, a very resilient US economy for the moment. Uh, I think uh, the economy will not crash, but there is a prevailing uncertainty in every, uh, every segment of, in the planet. There is a economic uncertainty, there is geopolitical uncertainty, there is a social uncertainty, there is weather uncertainty. All this will create a a persistent volatility that we have to get used to. Volatility means that things will go down, but also up in a very short time span. So, uh, the way we see this market uh, going forward is that we will have uh, basically everybody having a very short term approach on the on their charter commitments and on their investments. And uh, uh, this is something that we all have to get used to. Uh, And uh, uh, even though the market has gone down substantially, it is still at a very healthy level. Uh, Still looking downwards, of course, but uh, uh, I think once once the market plateaus to a certain level, we will uh, all feel
0: much more comfortable in in the new reality. Thank you. Tassos, how does URC sees the market at the moment?
1: It's not unexpected that the market has dropped. I think the party at those levels, it was certain that it would uh, come to some sort of uh, adjustment. Um, it, when the market drops, it drops faster than the time it takes to go up, so we had a precipitous drop, almost 70%, I guess, based on the indexes that you are quoting. I think we have planned our charter book and our strategy around that expected drop. Um, I share all the comments that uh, Dimitri said about uh, uncertainty and uh, uh, volatility in the market. I think we have a very interesting supply side. We can talk about it, I guess, uh, later in our, in our discussion here. Things could go either way in, in, in all respects. So it's a very challenging environment and we're starting from a position of strength having secured, I think all of us, a certain amount of contracts that will carry us for the next couple of years.
3: Ian. Uh, Echoing what um, the previous two speakers have said, um, the froth has come off the top of the market. It's, I mean, Clemens is much closer to it across a broad spectrum than we are. Uh, It's a bit difficult to tell because there isn't that much activity. There aren't that many ships coming open because they've all been fixed on multi-year charters. You know, we don't have anything coming open until next year. Um, so, you know, we're, we're not in the charter market today. Six months ago, three months ago, we were able to fix ships forward. Um, uh, we've fixed ships to start in 2024 on new charters. You can't do that today because of the uncertainty. We're also affected somewhat by seasonality. But the fundamentals still look pretty good for container ships over the next two to three years particularly for our size segments, the mid-sized and smaller collectively. The order book is pretty modest. It's 15% of standing capacity. If you factor in some level of scrapping of older ships over the next couple of years, then potentially just the numerical supply growth, net supply growth by the end of 2025 is only 5%. Factor in the effect of decarbonization Um, IMO 2023, EEIX, the fleet slowing down and you could have a static effective supply for container ships over the next uh, two or three years. So you only need a modest continuing increase in demand, which is what's less easy to predict, uh, for the supportive conditions that we've seen um, uh, in the last couple of years and in the charter
0: market to continue. So there that we had the sales pitch in the falling market? Say again? <laughs> there we had the sales pitch in the falling market. <laughs> well, that then presents yeah. an opportunity <laughs> for, for growth
3: yeah. <laughs> and investment in, in, in tonnage. But we'll yeah. no doubt talk about that.
0: Constantine, you were challenged six weeks ago, roundabout, um, by someone else on the question of you know, container ships free fall almost. We're six weeks later now. What, what do you say now?
4: Well, free fall... Uh, I mean, the market has dropped, yes. Um, if you call that free fall, uh, I mean, it's also a matter of where you're coming from. So I think overall we can, we can look at uh, quite some decreasing freight rates and time charter rates, but we should not forget that we're still at very, very elevated levels. Um, will that continue? Well, I don't know. In the end, you know, one thing is the industry, and I think uh, my co or fellow panelists have, have provided some perspective, and, and I would like to maybe add a slightly different perspective which is one is the industry, and there I I share most of what has been said. Um, The other thing is how are the players in the industry actually positioned? And and there I can just say that, you know, on the owner side, everyone has uh, good backlog. Uh, Also, the liner side is way more consolidated. The top 10, top 15 lines are all net cash. So I think the overall industry, and not just the market drivers, is in in a much better shape than it has ever been and certainly better than uh, post-2008. So I think that um, in addition to kind of the market observations which I, I share um, of, of my fellow panelists here is, is kind of in what what constitution is actually, or are the market players. Um, and I would leave it there, um, I'm sure there are more questions uh, so I don't have to repeat uh, some of the statements my, my fellow colleagues here made.
0: Thank you. Um, if we stay with you, Konstantin, um, on the supply and demand side, um, Ian just mentioned we have a 15% order book, which is maybe on certain segments. In general, we are over 20 in some, some areas, of course, way, way, way much. And in general, the outlook on the container ship market is that we have a big order book. Um, and in container shipping, we always have a cascading effect so that the bigger ships always push down on the smaller ones. Um, So how do you see the supply uh, and demand? Um, We have obviously, besides the new buildings, we had the the drop in uh, the port delays, which is another supply uh, of tonnage. How do you look at the supply-demand picture?
4: Well, overall, if you look at the order book, I I agree, especially the larger sizes, there is a massive order book. um, And and that that is a fact. Um, If you then look uh, at the smaller sizes, there's obviously also a question of different age profile. um, And of course, and I think that's very important when looking at the supply side, also different impact of the new regulation. Uh, By by virtue of the design of the the vessels that are, uh, you know, in general, slightly older in the smaller sizes, They have larger main engines, they run at, uh, or they they were designed to run at uh, faster speeds. So the impact of the new regulation uh, will be more relevant um, for the smaller sizes. So that means there will be more um, impact on supply, on vessels being available, um, on port rotation potentially. So we have run various analysis on intra-regional trades where we believe the impact will be the the biggest uh, in terms of new regulation. So that's on the supply side, I would say, Something that will compensate, maybe it will not compensate in full for, for the resolving of the congestions, but it will at least uh, need uh, or create the need to add capacity or to change port rotation by, by the liner operators. So that's the supply side. And on the demand side, um, I think if you look if you look forward, we have seen, and that has actually started not just with COVID; it has started with with trade war already, relocation of production from China to Southeast Asia, as an example. So we have seen more interconnectivity of this world, especially in Southeast Asia, leading to more ton mile demand, and those services are usually uh, commenced with with rather smaller vessels. So. I think overall, looking at the new regulation and then some supply side implications, as well as on the, on the other side, the demand development, um, I, I'm actually positive for the foreseeable future. Having said that, um, I'm not saying that the recession um, and, and inflation and the whole macro environment will not have an impact. It will have an impact and it will mean we will see some, some more rougher waters on the demand side in the next couple of quarters. And the question is how the consumption hubs in Europe and the US will deal with it. And to that part, I don't have an answer. And uh, whoever has an answer, um, I would be very curious to hear that. Um, but that's kind of my, uh, my perspective on demand and supply going forward.
0: Thank you. If I may jump to Dimitri. Dimitri, on your projects with your various investors, what do they use as for market forecasts? Do they just go for MSI? Or how do your investors, uh, what, what do they use?
2: Uh, our investors are mainly U.S.-based hedge funds or family offices or private investors, and uh, they all have their own economic opinion. Uh, of course, they resort they're to MSI and other uh, entities that provide uh, analysis about the market. But uh, 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 this is usually mostly to confirm their already. Uh, developed opinion about the market. Uh, we do very little uh, presentation, marketing, uh, on, on the basis of, of trying to, to create opportunities uh, that, that coerce our investors towards some kind of perception about the market. Uh, at the end of the day, we look for people who have an opinion and try to find projects to accommodate this opinion. Uh, but it is very difficult to understand where the opinion comes from. <laughs> uh, so, uh, in that sense, I think, uh, of course, uh, the, the, shipping, the shipping-based the uh, shipping analysis that we all get from Clarkson's MSI or other reputable organizations uh, is very useful, but uh, history has proven that there are so many other parameters beyond shipping that really make a difference in our business—that uh, it's very difficult to resort only to that.
0: Okay, thank you. And if I can ask, Ian, you mentioned the order book and, and that it's quite small. So at the same time, you have not ordered uh, new buildings uh, in your fleet. So I want to uh, want to hear your view on new buildings, whether uh, secondhand. Um, and with the secured cash flow you have of where do you see the value going forward on new buildings or, or second-hand?
3: Uh, thanks. Yeah, well, uh, we, we Global Ship merged, as many of you will know, with um, a, a privately held Greek-based uh, container ship owner called Poseidon. They did involve, engage in, in new buildings. Um, we have, they're now in our fleet, so we have, half nine eco-ships, which in today's EEIX, EII environment is an excellent asset. Um, But um, we don't look to engage in new buildings at the moment. We think it's far better, for us at least, other people have different views, uh, to sweat the existing assets. Um, There is so much uncertainty about decarbonisation, about future propulsion technology, what's the fuel going to be, We have long-lived assets, 25, 30 years. Um, We don't think it's appropriate to invest half a billion dollars in a string of ships where you're not quite sure if they're going to be rendered obsolete in 15 years because the engine technology is banned. We think there's plenty to do in the existing ship market. Um, So that's that's our position there. In terms of... of, of, and, And we look to exploit the cash that we will be generating uh, uh, in growing the fleet by adding further second-hand ships um, when valuations are appropriate and we can secure the right returns.
0: Thank you. Tazos. Eurosis has ordered new buildings, so you have a slightly different view?
1: Slightly different, I mean, we, we took the position that it's a once-in-a-lifetime, so to speak, opportunity to exploit that uh, windfall charter rates and um, put the basis for renewal of our fleet. Uh, also, comparatively speaking, new buildings were a lot cheaper than investing second-hand projects, at, at least uncovered. So we, we thought that by embarking in uh, this new building program, we ordered nice ships. I think overall cost is around 350 million. That would put the basis of the company for the next decade. These ships are very modern. They consume more than 30% less than uh, their peers that are currently on the water. So despite the uncertainties about propulsion and the fuel of the future, all any change would have to be gradual. So these ships being the most environmental friendly would be the first to be chartered. And uh, that would continue uh, the company and to prov- in shipping and provide returns uh, for our owners and shareholders. So that was the fundamental view of the, of, of for ordering the new buildings.
0: Yeah, um, thank you. Well, you ordered the new buildings uh, speculative, as, as you mentioned, so you didn't have charters. Um, and and I, I know the first ships were chartered uh, very well, so yeah. at least the first ones looked like a winner and the, the rest fir- is the, the first two <laughs>
1: have been quite, quite winners. I mean, uh, we, we chartered them at a rate that in three years the whole cost of the vessels gets repaid. We're looking forward to charter the the rest, but even if we charter them at at a third of the rate, even at a properly adjusted historical average for their quality, we should be able to to enjoy good average, at least average returns, or better.
0: And Constantine, MPC ordered also new buildings, and MPC container ships at least is more careful. And also secure charters. Now, going forward, this might be fixing forward a bit more difficult in this environment now, but how do you see your strategy on, on new buildings or further second hand?
4: I mean, uh... In terms of new builds, we would not order new builds without a charter. I mean, that's, I would say that's a starter. Um, we have done four new builds. All new builds are basically repaid through the initial charter. So we were able to actually line up charters um, hand in glove with, um, with setting up the new building contracts. Um, so we would do that selectively going forward as well. I mean, these projects are different to new building projects pre-2008, where people have either ordered on speculation or have have chartered them out so it, very quickly. I mean, they need time. We want to be selective on growth and selective on new builds because it's a, it's a high market. It still is a high market, so every growth should be carefully considered versus other opportunities in terms of capital allocation. We want to maintain a very rational stance as far as that is concerned. But in general, we believe there will be more new buildings. We have, for example, done uh, two new buildings uh, on conventional propulsion, methanol ready, and two actually dual-fuel methanol vessels with a 15-year charter. Um, and there we have also involved the cargo side, which is highly unusual in container shipping that you have effectively also uh, the charter being backed by a COA, 15-year um, COA. So I think that is the type of deals that that I can envisage we will also do going forward. Um, these deals take way longer, uh, so it's not an ordering off-the-shelf standard design um, and match a MERS charter against it. It will be a more... Um, kind of, uh, let's say, collaborative approach, um, and therefore I think it's good that we take it step by step. But I, I clearly see more of these opportunities involving also, let's say, optional premiums to go green, right? Um, it's not saying, we, we, I, we have not ordered to say that the green fuel will be there as of tomorrow, right? Uh, but the ambition, and, and the if you get paid for the optional premium, I think it's a very viable and, and, and valid path forward, and we would continue to do that selectively.
0: Thank you. Um, Now, we have inflation and we have uh, rising interest rates. So I would be interested, and let me start with Tasos on this. Um, What's your expectation on inflation and the higher interest rates and the impact on the sector?
1: Yeah, I think uh, a long question, a difficult question, challenging question. Um, clearly, expectations of higher interest rates, already here in higher interest rates, uh, they tend to reduce economic activity, GDP growth. That was the purpose, I guess, for instituting higher interest rates by the central banks in order to control inflation. That, in turn, lower economic activity should result in lower demand for containerized trade. I think there has been historically a link between uh, GDP growth and containerized uh, trade. And although the multiplier has come down over the last uh, 20 years, still there is a link. So less growth, less trade, that should be not positive, to put it mildly, uh, for shipping. At the same time, the inflation and the geopolitical uncertainty might create a reversion, an aversion to spending at least in uh, durable goods, uh, switching to services, that's also potentially negative um, for, for containerized trade. However, all of these are based on, a lot of these based on expectations. Expectations can change overnight. If people feel more comfortable about the stock market, say the least, or how their jobs uh, continue, and in the U.S., I have to say, despite all of these factors, we, uh, we have one of the strongest job market ever, I would say, with, uh, with the unemployment rate 3.5%, that could be contributing factors to demand for, container, for goods and container right. So one thing that is certain is that we're in a very challenged, challenging uh, period with many factors being up in the air trying to figure it out, both on the supply side that my colleagues here mentioned, but also on the demand side.
0: Yeah, thank you. Ian, looking at the, at the leverage, Um, What do you think is the right leverage in the current environment and, in general, uh, looking forward? Well, I don't think there is one. Um,
3: uh, Just be be prudent. I mean, we've we've all had the opportunity of backing the truck up in the last couple of years with elevated asset values to load more debt on our balance sheets. Most of us have resisted that temptation. We certainly have. Um, Most of us have older assets as well, so the bankers won't let you borrow uh, excessive amounts. Um, we, we prefer to look at financial leverage in, in, in looking at that—the uh, ratio of net debt to EBITDA—and um, you know, we're pretty comfortable on, on that measure, and that will further improve with uh, deleveraging uh, through debt amortization. But we're, you know, we're, we're, we're aware that most of our bank facilities have loan-to-value covenants, so we want to build a bit of cash on the balance sheet for increased optionality and resilience and we have some unencumbered assets. But I don't think there's a a right answer to to your question where you've got asset values that are doing this. Mm -hmm. So you just have to run your business cautiously and be able to respond to any downturn.
1: If if I can add a point here, I mean debt is good in the sense that it improves shareholder returns. Mm -hmm. Of course the the level of debt is that we're discussing. Uh, You cannot assume the historical average of debt when the market is at the peak as it has been uh, still over the last couple of years. So we view that uh, the traditional level of debt between 50 and 60 percent at historical average values, if you take that absolute dollar amount, that might be a prudent level of debt that we have now to improve the shareholder returns and at the same time reduce the exposure to potential change in value, so I would guess that is between 20 and 30% at today's levels, it would be a debt level that could be sustained if the market drops and at the same time improve a
4: bit your returns.
0: Thank you. Constantine. What, how does MPC manage its leverage at the moment?
4: Well, we, we have very low leverage, to be to be frank. Um, and uh, I think leverage is, is, is also a question of what type of asset do you want to finance. On our new builds, for example, we would definitely, if we have 7 and 15-year uh, time charters, we would definitely look at uh, slightly higher leverage. On, on the fleet where we have long-term cash flows locked in and, and second-hand fleet, we believe it's also about maintaining enough flexibility and optionality in the balance sheet because markets can move quickly. I mean, three months ago, values were were still up. You know, you should never get trapped in a LTV or covenant trap. Um, that, that is, that is, I think, uh, the most important thing when managing a capital-intensive um, a business. And therefore, I think it's. Uh, I mean, I agree with with a lot what what Ian said that it's there's not the right number. Right, uh, you need to be ready to act in, in every kind of market um, and make sure that you don't um, run into difficulties if the market drops and still maintain enough flexibility also act on opportunities but also to fight potentially a bad market um, and uh, the next part is obviously any leverage should be linked to a clear you know reason for allocating that capital I mean why, why You want to optimise returns, yes, that's one thing. You want to do an investment that is accretive on a per share basis, then it can make sense to increase leverage. So I think it's it's it boils down to having the right leverage at the right point in the cycle, to have flexibility and make sure you use the leverage for something that creates value going forward. Um, and that, I think, are the two most important principles in my book.
0: Yeah, uh, thank you. It's, I think it's in, in general, I mean, the shipping industry is full of cash and... Looking at the German banks, I think in this next downturn, they don't have to worry about shipping so much. I think there are other industries that German banks have to worry. Um, Dimitri, on your more single projects with your investors, how do, what leverage do investors take?
2: Well, uh, in general, uh, our investors are very averse to to leverage. Uh, Most of them like to be cash investors, 100% equity. Of course, uh, once we employ the vessels to a a repeatable charter for a specific time, then it is obvious that some leverage that is fine-tuned to the the guaranteed or perceived income is there to be taken. Uh, But uh, it is case by case, and, uh, and the truth remains that most investors are really averse to any type of leverage, so it's not a big issue that we have to deal with.
0: Yeah, okay, thank you. Tassos, um, if we... Amit um, Mehotra, one, one analyst, um, recently suggested we should be looking less at net asset value, but more rather on sustainable cash flow attributable to equity holders. Now, obviously, um, most of the companies here have a lot of secured cash flow, What's your uh, point of view on, on this comment from Amit Mohodra?
1: I think at the point of time that we are at right now for container <coughs> companies, for container assets, I think looking at the cash flows, the contracted cash flows, is probably this, the easiest and the safest safest way to value your assets. Um, simply because the market is in changing mode and sort of is coming down, I mean, NAVs are meaningless if you, if you don't intend to capitalize on them. I mean, we had NAV, seven dollars a share three months ago, but values have changed uh, the last three months. So what was the, the value of the $70 per share? Uh, but specifically, if you look at the contracted cash flows, that's a very tangible way of pointing where the value is. So that, I think, is probably the best way to value Especially older vessels, uh, right now um, in the container market.
0: Um, Ian, do you agree? Yes, I do. Um,
3: it was a very welcome report. Eventually, somebody seeing sense from the, from the sales side. Um, container shipping is a bit different to, to the other forms of shipping. We make money by renting out the assets, and that's cash flow. Um, Okay, dry bulk and and the wet trades do the same, but they also make a lot of money by flipping assets. So NAV and asset value is much more relevant. It's less relevant uh, with container shipping companies. We own, we we want to own our ships for as long as we possibly can and make money from them right through to the end of useful life. Uh, So, so we agree completely with that being a a better way of looking at valuing businesses.
1: Yeah, of course, if. if, The, the contract length is not as long as it is now then you rely a lot about if you go the earnings approach you rely a lot of making assumptions about the earning capacity of the vessel that being the case the the price of the asset is probably the best estimate of the future, future earning capacity because the market makes collectively that decision, that assumption for you so it depends on wh- whether there are contracts or not, if there are lacking contracts probably an AV is a good point of reference but in our case that we have likely enough contracts of certain duration and relatively elder vessels it makes perfect sense to focus on the earnings uh, approach
4: i would actually add a, a slightly different perspective because one thing is to value the assets the other thing is to value the company and and i think in the end Valuing the company also means, and, and that is what, uh, what the quote said, basically equity attributable and ideally going to shareholders. So I think uh, it's not just valuing the, the assets and the underlying cash flows, it's also valuing the approach in allocating capital, also in terms of dividend policy at the right point of the cycle, and actually returning capital to investors. And that's why, why I think an NAV approach is good to value assets, but it's not necessarily the right way to value companies because for companies, it's it's also a matter of returning capital to investors at some point in time. And therefore, I think it's also a combination of valuing the assets, the cash flows, and actually the flow of cash flows, not just within the company, but to investors. And that is, in my view, very important. And that's why at least we have placed a very clear emphasis on on distribution at that point of the cycle and then pay out a comparably high uh, dividend at that point in time. as we speak. I
1: agree. That's
4: a fair point. Mm. Uh, looking,
0: at, looking at the secured cash flow and the valuations of the companies, and we see uh, C-SPAN being taken private, and we have a number of uh, containership companies, or most uh, I can think of, have a very strong backing of, of a single shareholder. What's your view, if we start with, uh, with Tassos, uh, what's your view on um, maybe any moves to take any companies private um, in the containership uh, sector.
1: I can tell you that's a topic that has uh, frequently been discussed in, internally and by advisors who propose to us uh, ways of dealing with a severe discount to the intrinsic value of the company. I think our view continues to be that there, there is merit in being public, even at a smaller market cap as we are. I think that has, over the history of our company in the public market, has provided significant opportunities to make joint ventures, to collaborate, to, to raise money and do better financing deals at points of time. So I do, and so although I see that you can uh, take some of the assets at a discount if you take them privately, at the same time we see and we value the flexibility and the openness the public markets assign to you, give you and assign to you. And I think for, the, for this cycle, at least for the time being, we want to stay with being public.
0: Ian, not, not only to look at uh, GSL, but what do you think um, also well, for GSL, but also what do you think in the industry? Um, are we going to see other cases like C-SPAN? Well, well who, who can tell? Um, every board has, has
3: its own um, assessment of, of the opportunities, risks, and, and so on. I, I essentially agree with what Tassos has just said. Um, We we like being a public company. Notwithstanding what some of the financiers said on the previous panel, we we believe that it does increase the sources of potential capital. Um, We've tapped the the public markets in in, debt, equity and in between over the last three or four years, um, uh, moderately successfully, which has helped create the platform um, to allow us to double the size of the fleet in three or four years. Um, So we're, we're very comfortable being public. Um, but we're a public company, so there is, on the face of it, a public valuation, which we've just talked about.
4: Kozachyn, nothing to add, I, I fear. Good. I agree.
0: Yeah. Um, just uh, quickly before we before we finish, um, like to um, hear uh, some of your views. On we're looking at uh, CI and uh, EXI for the container ship uh, segments. I think, or I think, also Constantine you said that recently, that EXI might not be the deciding factor because EXI uh, reducing speeds is what container shipping has has done for the last 10 years. So a lot of tonnage, uh, it's not. But on CI, if I ask, uh, like to ask uh, Dimitri, on CI, do you think CI will have more of an impact and are you already um, implementing things for CII because it's going to be well, effective uh, from January onwards, counting?
2: Well, uh, the CII uh, discussion is a very long one and uh, uh, I think we, most of us attended the MERSC seminar last week. Uh, it is fairly obvious that there are a lot of question marks about the implementation of CII, especially since uh, liner companies control a big... Chunk of vessels, and they have also a capability of reshuffling their routes and their trading patterns of specific ships so they can somehow tamper the results that way. Uh, the, the things that an owner can do on an older vessel for uh, regarding CIA are very limited, and of course, we will do whatever can be done. But uh, at the end of the day, uh, CIA is more related to the trading pattern of the vessels. So this is completely out of our control. Uh, I think that at some point there will be a close, hopefully a BIMCO close, that will govern most charter parties in this regard. And uh, everybody will have to abide to. The owners will have to abide by doing whatever retrofit is possible and feasible for each vessel. And the liner companies will have to support this by changing the rotation of the vessels according to its vessel's characteristics. So I think it would be, in order to go through this uh, CII discussion smoothly, it has to be some kind of cooperation between uh, owners and charters going forward. And I think this is what will happen in everybody's favor.
0: Yeah, thank you very much. I, I also recently talking to a bike um, owner, I said it's going to be interesting from their perspective. They say once we follow ships and we know a ship uh, is in a bad rating and we know the ship needs um, for that year some long voyage, you know, we're going to be paying different charter rates for that ship, for that, you know, long voyage, et cetera. So it's going to be a lot of uh, things there and it's still quite unclear um, how this whole thing will go. Now we're 40 seconds over, um, don't want to hold you from lunch, um, thank you very much for my panelists here and um, thank you very much and enjoy lunch.